0: Okay. Well, welcome everyone. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Today we're reviewing a case study on the use of online instrumentation at Colorado Springs Utilities. I'm Shannon Miller. I'll be moderating the webinar, and I'm the marketing coordinator for the municipal segment here at YSI. Uh, YSI has designed and manufactured sensors, instruments, and solutions for water quality monitoring for over 70 years now. Joining me today are Ben Barker, YSI application engineer, and Sean Thompson, an environmental specialist for Colorado Springs Utilities. Uh, Ben and Sean will be discussing sensor applications, operator experiences, and recommendations on sensor use. Between the two of them, they have over 20 years of combined experience with online analytical instrumentation. Just a couple of quick things before we get started. This webinar is eligible for CEUs and we'll provide more information on that at the end of the webinar. Uh, Please feel free to use the questions and chat in the sidebar throughout the webinar. We've set aside some time during and after the presentation for Q&A. And lastly, this webinar is being recorded and the recording will be available to watch on demand at a later time. Um, With that, we'll go ahead and get started, and I'll turn it over to Ben.
1: All right. Uh, Thanks, Shannon. Make sure my uh, screen is shared.
0: I can Uh, see it. All right.
2: Perfect.
1: All right. So thanks, everyone, for attending today's webinar, uh, of course, called Case Study, Online Sensors Improve Wastewater Treatment. I am extremely happy to have on our special guest, Sean Thompson. Uh, the environmental specialist at Colorado Springs Utilities. Uh, How are you today, Sean? Doing well, thanks, Ben. Good, good. Um, So uh, for the listeners, before we start, uh, what exactly does it mean to be the environmental specialist?
2: Um, At Colorado Springs Utilities, my role is quite wide. i look for new technologies within the industry, um, implement those new technologies. I take care of all the regulations and permitting. Um, on our side in the resource recovery facility, uh, so pretty wide spectrum of roles.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, that's that's a really cool position. Um, so great. So uh, this will actually be the third presentation that Sean and I have done together. Uh, we first worked together uh, for a presentation and for Rocky Mountain WEA. Um, then we did a WeF webcast together for on instrumentation, and now this will be our third. So. Uh, Before I start, before I start, uh, we will have one poll question uh, coming up at near the beginning, and then there will be actually two Q&A sessions, uh, one about halfway through and then one at the end. So please feel free to get questions in uh, uh, throughout the presentation early and often. Okay, so starting off, this is what we will be covering today. Uh, We will start with a quick introduction on the benefits of online instrumentation. Then Sean will give us an overview on Colorado Springs utilities and the plants that he oversees. And then we'll go over the sensors that is used at Colorado Springs and how they are used. And then finally, we'll have a little discussion on his experiences with instrumentation. Okay, so let's get into the introduction. First, starting with the benefits of online instrumentation. So one of the first benefits to why online instrumentation is important is access to continuous 24-7 data. With this 24-7 data, we can do all kinds of things, most of what is coming up uh, in the next several slides. uh, But with this continuous data, we can get our baseline data, uh, which is important to know the behavior of the parameters throughout the entire day, rather than just like little snapshots uh, like we'd see with grab samples, uh, either daily or, or twice a day. Um, we get to see trends like, like the one we see here on the right, in which, our, uh, in which we had a customer that has aerators that are reacting to the incoming load. With grab samples, we would never be able to get this automated process or even to be able to see the rise and fall of ammonium that we see here and how it affects our uh, process control with the aerators. Second, we have monitoring process efficiency. With 24 7 data, we can, get, uh, we can use baseline data and visually see how efficient our process is. So let's, this lets us know how effectively we are removing things like BOD or nutrients, and also helps us see areas of improvement. In this trend on the right from Colorado Springs, uh, they are using a dual channel orthophosphate analyzer to measure anaerobic phosphorus release and aerobic phosphorus uptake. That's let, this lets them know how efficient their biological phosphorus removal is. And we'll talk about more about that uh, particular application later. Next, we have reduced energy and chemical costs. With 24-7 data, we can automatically control process variables and save energy and chemicals, which allows us to be more efficient rather than just throwing in as much aeration and chemicals as possible to get the job done. This can prove to be very beneficial and save uh, utilities a ton of money. Uh, Like in this example to the right, Where a customer reduced energy usage by 26% in just four weeks of fine tuning their aeration output uh, with their online sensors. Online instrumentation is also essential in ensuring your facility is meeting their effluent permits. Measuring it directly or using process control can give you peace of mind that the process is running smoothly and you are below your limits. With 24 7 monitoring, you can get alerts that or you can get alerts the moment when effluent discharge is out of compliance, allowing you to make uh, quicker fixes uh, to issues that might be occurring. And also with 24-7 monitoring, we can get increased treatment capacity with process variables being more tightly monitored. Uh, we can be more precise with our treatment um, and treat higher loads, which may have been uh, risky or even uh, impossible before. And then finally, we have reduced maintenance costs. With online instrumentation, we can reduce the amount of grab sampling or spot checking we are doing, especially with measurements like TSS, BOD, COD, sludge level or ammonium. Uh, We can get those measurements 24 seven and reduce the amount of time needed to run those, for instance, TSS samples or the five day BOD tests and only do them once a week rather than once per day, as some, uh, some facilities might do. So now before we continue, I wanted to make sure that we had the definition of two primary applications for instrumentation, the first being process monitoring. This is the continuous analysis of wastewater parameters, which provides the data for you to make process decisions. With process monitoring, we get many of the benefits that I previously mentioned, including uh, access to continuous data and process efficiency. And then the second application is process control. This is the active changing of the process based on the results of process monitoring, which is designed to maintain variables at an optimum level. All it takes is an input set point, a controller to calculate and initiate a change in the process, which would be increasing or decreasing aeration or increasing and decreasing chemicals, and then a feedback element, which provides the data for the reaction of the process. Online sensors are our feedback elements in this case, which tells you how our process is reacting to the changes that we made to the process. And here we have our six benefits of online instrumentation split up into either of uh, the process monitoring or process control. Okay, so that brings us to our first audience poll question uh, and I'll turn it over to Shannon to to, uh, run this poll.
0: Thanks, Ben. So we're interested in which benefit of online instrumentation is most important to your facility. And you can select one of these answers. Give you just a few seconds to do that.
2: Still have some votes coming in here.
0: Okay, um, it looks like. Let me share the results here. Twenty-five uh, percent of you selected access to continuous data. 32% monitoring process efficiency, 20% for reducing energy and chemical costs, 21% monitoring for effluent permitting. Thank you for participating. Right.
1: Thanks, yeah, that was uh, very interesting. They're all very evenly distributed, so a uh, seems that many of them are important to different, to different uh, plants, so that's a really interesting result. Okay. So, moving on to part 2, I'm going to turn it over to Sean and he's going to give you an overview of Colorado Springs.
2: Thanks Ben and Shannon. Um Like Ben and Shannon mentioned, I'm a environmental specialist for Colorado Springs Utilities uh, down here south Colorado on the Front Range. Color Springs Utilities has a pretty unique system with wastewater. We have a, our newest facility was built in 2004, um, went online in 2007. It's JD Phillips Water Reclamation, Resource Reclamation Facility. Uh, at that facility, it's uh, designed for 20 MGD, currently doing about nine MGD um, daily. We pull the solids out of that facility, and we send it down to our larger facility, a little bit further south, through the interceptor um, called Las Vegas Wastewater Resource Recovery Facility. And that facility is designed for 75 million gallons a day, currently doing about 30 million gallons a day. And then the most interesting part of our our process at Colorado Springs Utilities is we pull all the solids out of Las Vegas. And we ship them down a 17 mile pipeline to Clear Spring Ranch water resource recovery facility. And at Clear Spring Ranch, it's strictly a digestion complex. We digest the solids and after digestion, we land apply into a disposable land application. So we inject about six inches under the ground there. Um, Next slide. Uh, today, we're going to focus mostly on J- the JD Phillips facility. It's like I mentioned, it's a 20 million gallon a day facility built out for 30 million gallons possible. We have a lot of infrastructure that's already laid out, um, just doesn't have the guts put into it, but it is there if needed in the future. Uh, we serve the future existing and future customers of Northern Colorado Springs at JD Phillips. And it has its own unique aspects as it has a very State of the art odor control system um, because we are right in the middle of the city and nobody wants to smell the wastewater plant in the middle of the city. And the other challenge is we're completely covered, as you can kind of see there in the top left picture, and you'll see a larger picture in, later in the presentation. But with it being covered, as operators know, um, you want to see and smell the wastewater, and with it covered, you don't have that capability. So that makes the online intru- online instrumentation that much more important for us. Next slide. So this is a process flow diagram. Our secondary treatment is an A2O facility. We do both anaerobic and anoxic processes before aeration. Our tertiary treatment has disc filters and UV disinfection to achieve non-potable reuse. But the majority of the flow just goes through u v disinfection before being discharged to Monument creek. next slide, please. So here's just a quick quick snapshot shot of uh aerial view of j d. Phillips as you can tell um our entire facility is covered, which like I said, it makes many challenges for the operations here at the plant to uh observe and smell and see what's going on in their processes so once again, we're relying on that instrumentation. Alrighty, uh, so JD Phillips, it's not really your typical A2O process. Uh, it was built as a selector there in the anaerobic, just wasn't quite long enough to do detention. Um, since it's been built, we put in a temporary curtain to extend the anaerobic zone, which gets us closer to a more normal detention time for anaerobic zone. And we're pretty much anaerobic all times of that zone. Um, I'm just gonna ba- go basically through the the train, um, real basic. And later on in the presentation, we'll be highlighting more spe- specific probes in more detail. Uh, but starting, we have a, in the primary effluent, we have a NICAVIS, which we're monitoring BOD, COD, nitrate, nitrite, there. Um, not so much nitrate, nitrite, we're just utilizing that Nycavis probe. And then we also are trying a DO probe because we have a pretty kind of a large outfall of our primary. So we are getting some DO introduced into the A basin, which can cause some issues for phosphorus release and denitrification. Um, moving on in the anaerobic zone, we have a, an ammonia probe right there. It's it's in the anaerobic zone. We had some issues with it in the primary, so we move it to the anaerobic zone. Uh, so it is kind of diluted by the RAS, the return there, uh, but we can still see what we're getting into the A-basin daily. And then we also have an ORP probe there, uh, just to make sure that we're staying in anaerobic conditions with that ORP probe. We also have the newest ELISA, um, YSI ELISA, that sits, it's a dual mon, dual probe. Uh, One of the legs sit inside the anaerobic zone so we can monitor what kind of release we're getting out of that anaerobic zone. And then the second leg is in the aeration zone so we can monitor uptake. Moving down to the end of the anoxic zone, we currently have another Nycoviz. So we're doing COD, BOD, nitrate, nitrite in that location. Um, And I'll talk about a couple of those parameters later on in the presentation. Moving through the train, we have DO and ammonia. Both are capable of control for the blower. Uh, Here at this facility, we do do ABAC as much as we can, but we do have DO for uh, backup in case our ammonia probe is down or we wanna choose to use DO control. Moving down, you have the second leg of that of phosphorus and then going around into your CPAS, we have uh, a nitrate probe, an ORP probe, and then at the end, we have a DO probe. And I failed to mention at the end of our CPAP or in the end of the NOXIC, we have a brand new pH probe, too, that we'll be talking about later on. And then finishing off the basin in the MLSS channel, we have a TSS analyzer, um, which is phenomenal to get your diurnal MLSS throughout the day. So looking forward to wrapping up the meat of the presentation with Ben here and talking more specific We'll have the probes.
1: Yep. Yeah, it sounds good. All right. So uh, we're going to go through many of the sensors that uh, Sean has that Sean works with, um, but we only have so much time <laughs> to be able to talk about. So uh, starting with uh, we're going to go all the way down the line from, you know, uh, beginning of the process down to the effluent. So first, we're going to start off with the sludge level. Uh, which is a probe that Sean uses at their primary sedimentation tanks. So this sludge level, for YSI, it's called the IFAL 701. This sensor uses an ultrasonic pulse to read sludge level height. It sends down an echo, and by the amount of time that it takes to bounce back to the sensor is how deep the sludge is. Uh, These can be adapted for either primary sedimentation like it is at Colorado Springs, or for secondary clarifiers. it can also be adapted with a deflection arm to allow for rake arms to pass. And one of the main benefits of the sensor is to reduce the, the reliance on those uh, sludge judges. Um, so let's take a look at what this looks like at uh, Colorado Springs.
2: So this is uh, actually our newest install at the Las Vegas Resource Recovery Facility. Um, here we had just have a few different pictures of the sludge level meter inside the process. Um, a really good one there with it being swept by the rake that really it, the design is awesome. It's the best one I've really seen and uh, have had zero issues. And then as you can see that wiper, um, it doesn't clean the lens, but it does keep all the scum away. Yep. And Yeah, very useful. If you can go to the next slide. Mm-hmm. So as you can tell, we just put these in a couple months ago. This is a one week trend and we have six, sludge level meters in this trend and you can tell that they're just extremely consistent and we're uh we're controlling our sludge pumps off of a level so like i said they're extremely consistent and the install of them were we did it in a day just set a couple parameters set your level of How far deep the sensor is actually under submerged in the water, and then how deep you are to the surface of the clarifier, and it took right off. So each time
1: that, uh, each time the sludge level goes up and it goes over a certain level, you pump it down. Is that how the process control for that works?
2: Yep. Yeah. So we have set points Um, currently. We're running between two and a half and three foot at that facility, but yeah, if it gets above that set point, the sludge pump will kick on, and it gotcha. won't kick on if you're you're below it. So, um, gotcha. just a great optimization tool.
1: Yeah, very cool. All right. Uh, next, uh, moving on to secondary treatment, um, and this is specifically at JD Phillips. So this is the uh, this is the overhead view of those covered aeration basins. Um, so the cover duration does present a few challenges, as you said, um, not only with the, uh, the ones that you've mentioned previously, uh, but there's also, you know, there's no railings, uh, you have covers, uh, and you'll have to access sensors through hatches, I believe, um, which is not very, uh, not the easiest way to do it, but, uh, and probably the biggest difficulty is, uh, if you're going to add additional sensors to this plant, Uh, You would have to, when you add in conduit, you wouldn't be able to add that onto, like, for instance, along a railing. Uh, I believe what you've told me previously is that you had to, you would have to put it, put in conduit underneath the concrete, like over to where the sensor locations are.
2: Yeah, so these, this picture here is the two aeration basins side by side, and we're actually 34 feet deep. And previously we installed a new sensor um on profibus and we had to uh go down there with a 40-foot ladder poke it out of the cover and run conduit which was a very very slow process and very expensive process
1: yeah so yeah definitely um but luckily uh sean at one point uh began converting over to a iq sensor net system and uh began using uh, one of my favorite and underutilized things that we have is our uh, wireless modules. And basically, this eliminates the need for communication wiring across basins. Um, so what this looks like on the basin uh, is the IQ SensorNet system itself. Um, we can see that they have a single home controller on the right there. And they have a wireless module where each sensor connects. And that would be, as an example, uh, the one on the left. Um, From each of these modules, the data from the sensors are sent over a radio signal over to this main controller, uh, which then outputs all of the data of all of their sensors uh, with Ethernet IP, uh, with this uh, Ethernet cable that you see on the right. Um, It greatly simplifies installation Um, It makes it easier uh, for you guys to, you know, add sensors or add locations or move them. Um, So yeah, it's a very cool, very cool tool.
2: Yeah. um, One of the things that I want to mention before you move on, Ben, is we didn't get the picture in here, but so both basins are mimicked. They're identical. So when we switch from basin to basin, we can just move the probes over to the offline basin from the online basin. But one of my favorite parts is we built a a mobile cart. And so for Ah. pH or ORP, whatever we want to test, we can move that probe anywhere in the basin that we want drop a sensor in and it's automatically reading into the system so we do we do a couple uh different sensors throughout a couple weeks and we'll just collect data um in specific zones so it's very very mobile yeah that's a
1: uh, yeah for, I went back and looked at our Rocky Mountain presentation and uh uh didn't think about bringing that picture over but still, same uh, yeah very cool use of the wireless module Okay, so this is what the system looks like as a whole, uh, showing all the sensor locations. And Sean mentioned that uh, there's two different, two separate trains here. Uh, so the green would be the be the uh, first train or second train. Um, but the each of these modules is corresponding and sending a signal to this uh, green stack over here, uh, this green module, and then the other side is sending all of their data for all of these sensors over to the other. Um, the red module, which then is connected to your main controller, which then outputs via Ethernet. Is there anything anything to add on this one, Sean? Nope. I think I spoke ahead of you, so. (laughs) No, it's perfect. All right. All right. Moving on. Okay, so the first sensor uh, we'll talk about is uh, dissolved oxygen and uh, which we, the YSI version is called the FDO700IQ, which you can see here. Um, the dissolved oxygen is an optical DO sensor, which means a lot of good things, it means that uh, no flow is required. Um, it is uh, highly accurate. Uh, and the probably the nicest thing is that no regular sensor maintenance is required. So uh, no frequent calibrating, no uh, adding in electrolyte solution or changing caps. Really the only sensor maintenance that is required is cleaning it occasionally. And that depends on the process for how often you have to clean it. Um, the, this one in particular is cool because it has an intelligent sensor cap with a angled design. Um, this sensor cap is factory calibrated. Each one has its own factory calibration. Um, so instead of uh, calibrating it yourself, if, when you need to replace them, you just replace the cap and the new calibration is automatically uploaded into the controller um so at jd phillips the how do you how do you use these sensors at jd phillips
2: so with DO at jd phillips um we're in two different locations like i mentioned earlier uh the first location in the middle of the b pass we're actually using it as a secondary control so um all the time it's monitoring, but if we, for some reason, lose A back, we have that backup as DO control for the blowers, and then going around in the C pass, we have another DO probe, which we have a different set point for that C pass, and um, that's the only control. So the C pass is controlling the blower well for the air that we want in the C pass, and the B pass is a, a backup to A back.
1: Gotcha. Cool. All right, the next sensor, uh, we'll be talking about uh, ammonia. So ion selective electrode sensors uh, often get a bad reputation uh, for, you know, drifting too much, you know, being unreliable at low le- at low levels. Um, but the our technology, the YSI uh, AMOLET, is unlike any other ISE that is out there. Um, and this thing really works. So first off, this is a, This sensor is capable of measuring both ammonium and nitrate at the same time. Uh, Each electrode is individually replaceable, meaning you only replace the ones that you have to. And we have an extremely long reference electrode, which you can see here. And what that does is that it ensures that it will provide a stable, uh, a stable reference measurement um, or millivolt value uh, to ensure that it will last the life of these other uh, electrodes. So they have a. The electrodes also have a 12 month warranty which and they're expected to last 18 months which is extremely long for this type of uh this type of sensor and finally a really cool piece of engineering uh they have a stainless steel mesh membrane over the or a stainless steel mesh over the membrane and that just adds durability and allows you to clean directly over the electrodes uh, which is very uh very cool so
2: Heading on to at JD Phillips, uh, how do you use amulets? So amulets, uh, we have two different applications with this probe as well. Um, the first one, we're just monitoring what's coming in the influent of the train. Uh, so it's strictly monitoring, not doing any type of control with that probe. The one of the more critical probes in our process is that B pass uh where we're doing aeration based or ammonia based aeration control and I'll mention it later but I'll mention it now as well those probes those electrodes they will last 18 months but if you are controlling a piece of equipment especially a blower that's controlling your process you probably want to get a work order in and replace those before their end of life because that's such a critical piece of equipment that um you want to rely on yep i i agree
1: it makes uh makes sense to be uh, be ahead of on of the maintenance And, uh, just doing it at a yearly interval makes a a lot of sense, makes it easier and ensures that, uh, ensures that you don't have to have one of those instances where it's down. Um, so. Yep.
2: And that's exactly where we're set. We're every 12 months, we're changing those electrodes and that, that probe we're only using for ammonia. We're not using it for nitrate.
1: Okay. Gotcha. All right, so we're going to pause here um, and take a second. And uh, Shannon's going to come on. And uh, if you guys have any uh, Q and A questions or questions for us, now that we're halfway through the presentation, feel free to put it in the chat, and we'll uh, we'll uh, we'll talk about it.
0: Uh, thanks, Ben and Sean. We do have a couple questions that have come in. Um, like Ben said, if you have any questions, now is the time to ask them. And first question is for Sean. How do you maintain your ammonium sensors?
2: So maintenance is it's pretty maintenance free. We go out there uh, monthly right now, and we we're cleaning them, and we do a verification. And if it's off if it's off from the verified level of ammonia with our benchtop, then we will calibrate. But to be completely honest, these electrodes, once it's calibrated and you main, you clean it on a regular basis, you really don't have to do any calibrations for that for that entire year. And that's in that's in the aeration um, basin where it's pretty nasty. Gotcha.
0: Okay. Um- What is the maximum concentration DO probes can measure?
2: Uh,
1: I'll take that one at least for our, for the FDO, the maximum is 20 milligrams per liter, uh, which should be plenty enough for most, most applications,
2: uh, especially in wastewater. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's pretty industry wide. Yep.
0: Okay. And Ben, how often do you recommend replacing DO probes?
2: So the DO probes
1: themselves are we usually have a, like the standard for replacing online instrumentation is usually like something like 10 years and DO probes are extremely reliable and that they usually last a long time. Um, so the actual probes themselves, I would say, you know, eight to 10 years would be like a long li- like an entire lifetime. As far as the sensor cap goes, though, uh, that's more along the lines of a uh, two to five year range. Um, they are warranted for two years, the the uh, the sensor caps are, uh, but up to, uh, I would say they can last up to five years. So two to five years for the caps, eight to 10 for the actual probes themselves.
2: Yeah, and I'll pitch in on that as well. We have over, between the two facilities, we have over 15 DO probes. Um, we have a lot at the Vegas facility and we're, going on four years and haven't replaced the OCAPs. Nice.
0: Okay, uh, this question's for Sean. What is the ratio of operator to technicians with all the automation?
2: So, um, at our large facility or Vegas facility, we have, uh, it's over 30 analyzers and we have one operator that has taken on that job and he he spends maybe a a whole day a month um maintaining all the equi- all the probes and that's that's after setup it it's it takes a bit to get them calibrated and running but once they're up and running they're like i mentioned before especially the uv probes they're they're bulletproof
1: nice yeah uh yeah I would say that sounds sounds about right, yeah, but the, yeah the whole thing is you know making sure that they are set up correctly and that'll that'll make them easier for you da- for for you down the road or to avoid like any problems
2: absolutely, and maintaining them is very critical yep all right well, uh should we move on <laughs> all
0: right. Sure, so. uh, we have other questions, we can address them at the end or we can follow up with people after the webinar
1: okay yeah so we'll there is another q a session at the end um but we will uh we'll we'll start again to make sure that we get through the entire presentation and then uh we'll hit as many questions at the end as we can all right okay so moving on next we have uh oxidation reduction potential or orp so for ysi we have the ysi sensolate which is which is on the right here um so this particular probe can be pH or ORP, um, depending on the electrode that you have. Um, The electrode is replaceable. So that means rather than, uh, for instance, refilling with electrolyte solution or refilling a salt bridge, we replace the entire electrode instead. And that's usually about every 12 months, I would say, uh, 8 to 12 months, maybe more. but the warranties for six months for these particular electrodes. Um, so they have some uh, cool features. There, they have an internal sensor check. So it basically, uh, if something is going wrong with the probe itself, such as the glass is broken, it will actually know that and it will throw a message into the uh, into the into into the controller to let you know that that's happened. And uh, we have a variety of different electrodes uh, for different applications. Some for high pressure. Uh, insertion mounts or, or uh, for, for instance, or high, or high density wastewater, um, or high strength wastewater. So very, a lot of different uh, things going on with this probe. Okay, so how is ORP used in
2: JD Phillips? So yeah, we'll talk about ORP first. Um, we have two ORP probes, one in the anaerobic zone and one in the anoxic, or actually it, it's an aerobic zone. We're using it as the modified anoxic zone. Uh, when we shut off the air with our membrane diffusers. But uh, strictly for monitoring with ORP, I know there's some case studies out there where people are starting to control their blowers with ORP. We're not there with ORP yet, but uh, we wanna make sure that we're in an anaerobic condition. um, So we're monitoring that. And then also in an aerobic or anoxic condition when we're using that swing zone with ORP. Uh We recently put in p h electrodes as well um one specific one that's actually controlling a caustic pump, so we are hold on. Um, we're using that p h probe at the end of the anoxic zone to control caustic and adjust our pH in the a basin, which helps tremendously with our alkalinity of the of the train um but one thing I will mention because I did it. I was trying to use our ORP probe that we already had as pH and you can't. So make sure that you're changing out that electrode.
1: Yep, definitely. <laughs> All right. So on to the uv uv spectrophotometer sensors. So this is a, uh, it's a UV fo- or UV-UV-Viz spectrophotometer sensor. So the way I like to describe this probe is that the spectrophotometer that you have in your lab or a benchtop? Uh, just imagine that, just in place directly into the water and measuring continuously. So, the types of parameters that we can measure online are in the top left. So, it would be uh, nitrate, nitrite, at many carbon parameters such as COD and BOD, and uh, uvt 254 and even TSS. So, with this particular probe, we measure 256 wavelengths scanned for each measurement. So if you look at the, uh, the diagram on the right, between 200 nanometers and 720 nanometers, we are getting the absorbance measured at each of those wavelengths. And depending on the amount that's absorbed, we can put it into an, a wastewater algor- algorithm, which then co- calculates a, uh, a milligrams per liter value of any of these parameters. So, uh, with 256 wavelengths, uh, we can get a better correlation, um, a better turbidity correction, as a lot of these, nano, uh, as a lot of our wavelengths are to correct for turbidity, and it allows us to differentiate between nitrate and nitrite. Um, and with this, we can also get better compensa- compensation for continually changing uh, wastewater processes. So. Uh, this is an interesting probe that is used at JD Phillips, uh, quite extensively. So, uh, Sarah, go ahead. Yeah.
2: So, uh, this to me is the Cadillac of UV probes. It has a wide range of parameters that has been mentioned. Um, for the most part, we're just using COD, BOD, nitrate, nitrite on this probe. Uh, between the two facilities, we have several installed, uh, specifically talking about JD Phillips, um, the one at the end of the anoxic zone, we have uh, is there, it's COD, BOD, nitrate, nitrite. And with that nitrate parameter, we're actually controlling our Emler pumps um, to turn on and off Emler pumps with our nitrate at the end of the anoxic. Uh, at that first anoxic zone? Okay. Yep. Okay, but yeah, this one. And then the second one that we're using for, not for control, but for really heavy monitoring, um, is in the primary effluent. We are very carbon limited at J.D. Phillips. So we want to maximize as much of the carbon as we can get. We're getting it through building blankets in the primaries and trying to recover as much carbon there as we can. And then we're also, uh, we get a whey. It's a cottage cheese byproduct, um, whey. And we get it trucked here from a local dairy to give us some extra carbon for the facility. So we're monitoring what we're, what we're getting and what we're putting into the a base in there. Gotcha. Other than that, the rest of them are pretty much just for monitoring, but it's really good process control.
1: Yeah, definitely. Okay.
2: So, so here's a look at uh, one of those Nike visits in the Noxic zone of uh, the Las Vegas facility in, in the process. And then this is a a success story. It was the first time we were able to actually see um, something come through with the COD and BOD. Normal daily operation, you don't see a whole lot of movement, but as you can see there on the right screen, you have those two bumps. And what it turned out to be is we have an industry that likes to dump BOD on us, um, and they're not supposed to. And one day we had just some fine bubbles coming in the basin and DO was nothing. Ammonia was spiked. As you can see there on the left, the purple is ammonia and the blue is uh, nitrate, kind of where they come together. Um, And the the two bumps previous is kind of normal day. So immediately we went to the COD, the Nykavis probe. We looked at the COD and BOD data and saw that something was out of ordinary and we went to that industry user that was pretty common to us, and we asked them, did, they, did you send something? And sure enough, they did. And it, was, it knocked us out for about six hours. So being able to see that on a probe um, and not just losing DO for six hours and chasing your tail to maybe mechanical problems um, really defines a problem. Yeah, that was really cool. When you uh, first told me about that, I was like, you
1: have to send me trends. <laughs> yeah.
2: The, right. the, the industry wasn't happy with us that we caught them so quick, but...
1: <laughs> I'm sure. We're on them. All right. Uh, now, I'm moving on to the uh, orthophosphate analyzer, the, uh, the ELISA analyzer platform is, it is YSI's newest technology. And it features both uh, orthophosphate and ammonium uh, measurements Uh, separately, of course, uh, but we have the possibility of measuring both of them, um, either of them. The improvements over the previous model is the reduction of the minimum detection level down to 0.02 milligrams per liter, and that's for both uh, ammonium and orthophosphate. And a reduction to a uh, 5 to 10 microliters of reagent used per measurement which if you uh, add that up for uh, an entire day, that will be less than one milliliter per day of reagent use, which is pretty crazy. Uh, also, the analyzers come in one or two channel options and uh, Sean actually uses a two channel option, uh, which is very cool. And it features auto cleaning, auto calibration functions, both uh, sing- or both one point and two point auto calibrations, uh, two options for filtration, either an in-situ filter, which is usually what we use, Um, and also a two year warranty on the entire uh, unit. So, uh, Sean, let's take a look at this setup for the Eliza.
2: Yep. So, uh, this is the newest install at the JD Phillips facility and looking forward to getting a couple more, um, one more here at JD Phillips and one at the Las Vegas facility as well. But, uh, this, analyzer it has two legs like i mentioned earlier one's going in anaerobic we're measuring what phosphorus is releasing there in the anaerobic zone and then just on the other side of the wall in the aerobic zone we're measuring what the uptake is um you, you saw the the trend earlier you'll see the trend in the next slide but it's it's phenomenal you can tell what your process is doing so quickly and you can make an adjustment instead of waiting for lab results it it's a game changer for sure
1: yeah that's really nice uh question i actually i don't know do you guys use the in situ filters uh where you drop it uh the disk filters which you drop directly into the basin
2: yep yep both are there and being in colorado with it cold they're peat traced so okay um we're told we're going to we're going to test it out this winter but uh we're told that this box isn't going to freeze the components. <laughs> no, it
1: it shouldn't. We have it in similarly cold places
2: uh, around the U.S. Okay. So, once again, this is the trend. Um, the red line, it actually goes upwards of 30 milligrams per liter uh, where we're releasing in the anaerobic, and then the blue line is the uptake. Uh, the scale is actually highlighted on the uptake, so the scale there is actually correct um so we're less than one milligram per liter leaving the a basin uh and we're seeing pretty good release on that trend there's days that we're less than 20 at our peak because of our our low carbon coming into the plant but that's actually pretty good on that that specific snapshot yeah definitely okay uh
1: so now, leaving secondary treatment, uh, we'll br- briefly talk about uh, UV disinfection. Uh, our line of UV sensors does come in a version which only measures UVT. Um, so it's the same sensor uh, shown down here, uh, but it only measures UVT 254. Or it could come on one of the possible parameters of the CarboVis or the Nikaviz. So th- different options for the probe depending on what you need to measure. So with UV disinfection. Uh, The UVT percentage measured by the sensor can give an estimate of the organic matter within the channel and that measurement, along with flow, can be used to automatically control the UV dosage. Now, without a UVT sensor, you would have to manually set the UV dosage or run the bulbs at 100 percent. And if anybody has run UV disinfection before, knows that replacing those bulbs are very expensive and it's also expensive to even run. Uh, so any energy or lifetime that you can save will uh, save a lot of money so how does this work how do these sensors work for you Sean
2: so at the Las Vegas facility we have two that are actually side by side The one for uh, backup but um, if here's the next slide this is actually UVT in process and one hanging out and then the next one I want to talk briefly about the trends um, one of my favorite ones to talk about, and on the right, we were having a lot of issues for a week and fighting it, fighting it. And as INC people know, the first people that get blamed is INC folks or the or the instrument itself. And I want to just tell you, we troubleshoot this for a week and we're getting blamed for by operators that it's it's the probe, it's the probe, it's the probe. And finally we've found that the they did a big cleaning on a secondary clarifier, had lots of algae. Algae was sticking to the plastic chain and some of the algae was going in that pathway of the UV sensor. And so finally we got it cleaned up. We ended up dropping the sensor only about a foot. We dropped both of them about a foot. And on the left is what we get today. And you can see how tight that those two run together. Yeah, it's pretty pretty incredible, like how
1: how how closely closely they are together. And I also remember trying to troubleshoot those two probes with you, uh, trying to figure out what exactly was going on. I was like, I, I don't know.
2: <laughs> yeah, we we did all kinds of things in that week, and it turned out it was just the little bit of algae had moved in the probe. So location is key with instrumentation as well.
1: Yes, definitely. All right, so. That's everything for the online sensors that we're going to talk about. And we're going to head on to our final section and talk a little bit about Sean's experiences with instrumentation. Uh, and I also wanted to tell you guys to keep in mind that we will have another Q&A session afterwards. So if you have any questions, uh, please, uh, again, enter it into the chat. Okay, so we're just going to leave this uh, kind of a summary uh, slide up as we talk about it. Um, but. We'll start with the first question for Sean. Uh, why is online instrumentation
2: valuable to you? So, to me, online instrumentation is very valuable. Um, it can give you a complete story. Like I mentioned before, 24 7 data, this on its own is extremely beneficial. A couple examples um, JD Phillips, we touched a bit today, is extremely diurnal, ranging from 2 million gallons a day to 14 million gallons a day, peak to peak throughout the day. So having that 24-7 data gives you a big picture instead of manually taking grabs or whatever time intervals that you may choose or a 24-hour composite sample. Um, Last year, we installed that TSS analyzer in the MLSS channel. It so happens to be that um, at the time of day that we were taking that daily grab ended up being the lowest concentration of the entire day, but we were making all of our calculations off that grab. So now that we have a 24-hour seven days a week uh, analyzer we can calculate pounds per day using that analyzer and be a lot more accurate and we're going to be able to operate a lot better a couple other reasons instrumentation is valuable is uh, you can solve a problem become before it comes a bigger problem i think it's huge to be able to make a process decision before you get those lab results that might take two days three days um up to a week whatever it is and you can also control equipment with the parameters as long as you're taking care of that equipment. So, one thing I like to tell everybody I've already mentioned today: the the instrument's only as good as you're taking care of it. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh yeah. One of the main things that
1: I uh, always point out is that probably the, the biggest leading factor into the success of a sensor is how how you maintain it, or how uh, do you have a schedule um you know making sure being ahead of the of the maintenance rather than letting trying to catch up to the maintenance uh, yep. always helps okay cool so uh second question uh what does it take to maintain the online sensors at colorado springs and i think you already got into this a little bit
2: uh but yeah and i think with the uh, the time we have and to answer some more questions later i think we hit on this one pretty well yep agreed all right. Uh, next, uh, what is the most diff What is most
1: difficult about maintaining online sensors?
2: Probably the most difficult thing with maintaining online sensors is getting it calibrated and being where you can have confidence in that in that meter. So, yes, it's going to take you multiple times to calibrate that sensor to get it up to spec, to get it to where you're confident, where you're taking a benchtop reading to that sensor reading and being confident that it can control a piece of equipment. It takes time. It's not put in the water and you're done with some of these instruments, but it's it's worth the time that it takes you. So um, I would say just, you have to have patience, calibrate, calibrate, calibrate. But once it's reading to the bench top meter, the the thing is gonna run flawless. Yep. Uh, One thing
1: I'd like to add to that is there's Uh, different styles of calibration uh, per per sensor Uh, so like pH and ORP you uh, do with a um, with a standard and then uh, like the ammonium and the UV sensors for instance uh, they are basically matching to a grab sample but they are also done differently. So it's really just a matter of getting comfortable comfortable with that how you particularly uh, calibrate that particular probe which you should be able to work with like the manufacturer to be able to do that, Um, and uh, also making sure that your process for your grab samples uh, are in line. So make sure that your CODs and BODs are accurate, because if you're calibrating too bad data, you're going to continue to get bad data. Um, So, uh, yeah, all right, Uh, next question, Uh, do you have any tips and tricks?
2: Um, just a couple maybe tips, uh, with online instrumentation, make sure you're keeping the instrumentation really clean, maintain, make sure it's verifying to your benchtop samples. Um, make sure you're patient. If you got to wait on the lab, don't just throw in values because you want that data to be accurate. Uh, make sure on your instrumentation that you have work orders put in place because, I've seen time and time again where instrumentation can get neglected because you don't have a, a work order out there and it just gets forgot about. So um and then like I mentioned earlier, with probes that you're using control off of, just don't waste don't wait till the end of the instrument life, change it because obviously it's important enough where you're controlling something. And then I'd also say location of an instrument is critical, as well as research all that install applications, um, as there may be something that will be better suited for your install. Yeah, those are great.
1: Okay, uh, so uh, we probably have some lots of questions, so I'm going to move on uh, and finish up really quickly. So, of course, uh, all the sensors uh, shown today are part of IQ SensorNet. Uh, which is a plant-wide wastewater monitoring system like we demonstrated today. Um, you can monitor monitor parameters throughout your entire activated sludge system uh, with a single controller, uh, which can be networked to include up to 20 sensors. And I think your, uh, your particular look was about like 18 sensors or did you use all 20? I, I don't remember. Um,
2: we actually have maxed out the JD Phillips one and at Vegas we have a couple that are reaching that point as well. Um, We're getting ready to put in our wireless, our second wireless install at JD Phillips. Gotcha. Nice.
1: And that's it. So don't forget that we have a bunch of great material on YSci.com that can help you learn about wastewater instrumentation. uh, So feel free to, and also feel free to reach out to Sean or I with uh, any questions that you might have. So our emails are up there. Uh, And lastly, I'd like to give a huge shout out to Sean for taking the time and effort to help put this together and work with us on this uh, and share your uh, expertise with us. So thank you.
2: Absolutely, I enjoy instrumentation and I enjoy working with you guys, appreciate it. (laughs) Thanks, yes. Uh, All right, so let's
1: finish up with our Q&A number
2: two.
0: Thank you, Ben, and thank you, Sean, for joining us today. Uh, We have several questions, so we'll try to get through some of these quickly. Um, If we don't get to your question today, we will follow up with you after the webinar. Um, We'll start with, uh, we have some questions about using compressed air cleaning with sensors, specifically ORP and the nitrate and ammonia sensors. So, Sean, do you use uh, compressed air cleaning?
2: So, we actually only have compressed air cleaning on a couple of our ammonia probes and on our um experiences we actually just go out there and clean them on mm-hmm. your scheduled cleaning and we don't have issues so we've actually pulled the airbox off of a couple of them gotcha um
1: nice so to add to add to that uh yes oh well i would say the orp and uh, ammonium are to the most common sensors that we have, that customers would put uh, cleaning air on, uh, we have definitely we have several cleaning air options. We have options that are, can do a single channel, uh, so like a single sensor, or we have ch- compressors that can do two or even four sensors with a single compressor. Uh, so there's a lot of options out there, um, but depending on the application it, and like what's going on in your process, uh, it might make more sense. And the reason usually ammonium is like the ammonium IC sensors are more commonly used is because it's like, if you're trying to do ammonia based aeration control, you want that to be that sensor to be as clean as possible and having an air cleaning on that will keep that cleaner. Um, even though like if you, if you wanted to touch it less, um, it's a good option.
0: Okay. Um, Sean, do you find the instantaneous readings or the trends more important?
2: Um, it depends on what you're looking at. I mean, if you're looking at a, a analyzer for just monitoring, obviously it's going to be your trend where you can see a long, longer time range, but it's very valuable to have that instantaneous for something you're controlling.
0: Okay, and we have just a few minutes left here. We have a lot of questions around maintenance um, for different sensors. Um, can we talk about maintenance for the ORP sensor?
2: Um, on our end, we're just cleaning it. Um, we just go out there with process water. Uh, so we'll, we'll actually take the effluent plant water and clean it. We don't use DI water uh, and then just wiping it off. Yep,
1: that's a good point. Uh, DI water is shouldn't be used on any electrode. So that would be, uh, pH ORP ammonium nitrate. Um anything that involves an electrode shouldn't be cleaned with the eye water. Um I, it's, as far as do you uh, I'll ask you, Sean. Uh do you ever do the do you ever calibrate using Zobel's solution with ORP?
2: Um we haven't yet. Okay. Gotcha. All
0: right. Okay. Um let's see here. We have some questions around whether we have annual maintenance contracts and if um, sensors have to be sent in annually, et cetera. Maybe elaborate a little bit more on UVVIS sensor maintenance. And no, we do not have maintenance contracts.
2: Yeah, I was going to say I'd like to touch on that before, Ben, but there is no service contracts, which is phenomenal. Um, we've had them, and they're not yeah, fun. Yeah, that's uh,
1: one thing. Well, I guess uh, one of the the points that we like to make is that you, you we think that customers like we are it's designed for wastewater our system and our sensors are and we want to we think that you don't have to have a service contract to be able to take care of these sensors you uh, we have the options through our manufacturing reps uh but we ourselves we don't offer that um uh we don't offer that or we don't make that a requirement because we think that customers can you know uh handle it themselves
2: yep or that they want to And I'd say definitely reach out to your manufacturer rep, and I will give him a plug because he takes such good care of us. But uh, our local rep is Ambient H2O, and Sean Lynch is phenomenal. Yep, absolutely. Great guy.
0: Okay, well that brings us to uh, the end of the hour. We, again, will follow up on any questions we didn't get to today. I did wanna quickly mention, I'm gonna put a link here in the chat. Uh, We did a webinar earlier this year on ensuring reliable data um, with sensors. So that's got more information on maintenance and things like that. So I'll put a link in the chat for everyone. And I'm also going to include a link for the CEU quiz. If you are interested in CEUs, you can click and take the quiz now, or you can wait until we send out uh, the post-webinar care package, which will have the same link and um, more information. Uh, Thank you everyone for joining us today. I hope everyone has a great evening, and we hope to see you next time.
1: Yeah, thanks everyone. Thank you.